I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Human Ordinary is sponsored by Movement Watches. Classic design and quality construction at an affordable price. Plus, if you use the offer code PLANET when you make a purchase, you'll get 15% off the sale price. Check out the range at mvmtwatches.com. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. A little over a year ago, I entered a competition where people had to pitch a podcast idea. I submitted the idea for this Headstone series, and luckily enough, I was a finalist. So at this night, the three finalists had to get on stage and explain their idea to the audience and judges. I didn't win, but after I returned to my seat, a woman tapped me on the shoulder and said that I should get in touch with her friend. That friend was Jesse Williams, the CEO of an organisation called The Groundswell Project. The Groundswell Project is all about changing the way our culture views death and dying. And so Jesse did indeed seem like a good contact for me to make as I ventured out to make stories about life and death. I got in contact, and through our conversations I learnt some of her story. It's a story of loss, grief, and the eternal bond between mums and bubs, and I asked if she wanted to share it on this podcast. Well, she said yes, and this is it. So my son's ashes are held in um, this yellow Mexican ceramic bowl with a lid. The lid is sealed with wax. Um, I've not opened it since we put his ashes inside. I don't think there's any difference there between a headstone and a vessel like this. It's an object that is an external representation of how you feel about this person. Sometimes people ask me, will I ever open the bowl? Will I do something with the ashes? Will I scatter them? And my answer is always, not today. There may be a day where I do that. But right now I'm still his mum and he still needs to be with me. This is the Headstone series, stories about how we live with our mortality. Jessie Williams was 30 years old and in a relatively new relationship when her and her partner decided to have a baby. It was one of those situations where a couple become a family just to work out whether they really loved each other. And so they threw caution into a Sydney sea breeze and decided to go for it. It was the first baby in Jessie's family, and like all pregnancies, there was massive excitement from all and sundry about what was to follow. Jessie had a typically normal pregnancy, and when they found out she was having a boy, they decided to name him Monty. Then one night, with Monty fully cooked in her belly, Jessie settled down to watch Law and Order, and her waters broke at the exact moment of the show's signature music accent. And with that came excitement, exhilaration, and fear. Jessie says she had a perfect labour, but somewhere along the way, for reasons no one really understands, 
Monty's heartbeat started to fade and he never took a breath. The hospital tried, but there was nothing that could be done. When Jesse was told the news, all the sound was sucked out of the room. Everything except Jesse's crying. And in the midst of the sadness, the numbness and disappointment, a social worker approached Jesse and seemed to know just the right thing to say. Um, I remember the moment that the social worker leaned in and gently said in my ear, you can take him home, you know. I remember the feeling of elation in that moment. It just never really occurred to me that the plans that we always had were, were going to actually be fulfilled. We're going to take our boy home. I knew that there was a silent guard of honour from the nurses as we walked out of the room. But of course, the minute we got into the lifts, we were released into the world, the world that was going on regardless of our experience. And there was this, almost this forward team, you know, this team of people that went to my house and kind of got it ready for our return. They put some flowers in a vase and opened up the blinds and let the sun in. And we settled in with him. He was the centrepiece. He was in the lounge room. And every now and then somebody asked to hold him. I just wanted to sit and wallow. And uh, somebody bought a case of beer. <laughs> And um, my butch friends went and got a packet of Champion Ruby, which is what I loved to smoke back in the 90s. And uh, they started rolling me fags. <laughs> and of course, I hadn't smoked in forever. And we had um, Nick Drake playing constantly. I couldn't bear silence. There was never a silent moment, I suppose, except for when I was actually in a sleep. What did you think was going to happen if there was silence? It was going to howl. <laughs> And that howl was going to be destructive to the world. I let out one of those howls in the hospital and it just stopped everything. Everyone stopped. And I, my hand went up into my hair and I grabbed a big tuft of my hair and I pulled it very, very strong with every bit of strength that I had. I pulled my hair and I howled. It was like a lever for the sound to come out. And everybody stopped. And that was quite a shock to myself and to other people. So I was worried that that was going to happen again. So we filled it. We filled it full of chatter and music and laughter and talk. It's a very organic process. You know, I had one friend who happened to be a social worker. Whenever she showed up, she checked the laundry basket. And she accidentally put the whites and the colours in on one wash and so everything came out in pink, which was hilarious. I had to wear pink clothes for the next week. I had a friend who was studying Chinese medicine, so she went into her books and said, what, what's the best Chinese medicine broth I can make for a woman who's grieving? So she spent two days at home with all of her herbs, like this witch with a cauldron, you know, <laughs> making this thing. And she, she wrote out the instructions and she stuck the instructions onto the vessel because she just knew that I wouldn't remember how to warm it up to a certain temperature. You know, they didn't come to me and ask me what did I need. They did what they knew to do and that including the people who didn't know what to do. That was their job to not know what to do and to do that. Everybody had their job, driven by an incredible sense of compassion. My partner, Andy, Monty's dad, was, he was like an event manager. He was shepherding people, greeting people at the door, thanking them. He was constantly making speeches of gratitude, which was extraordinary. My doula, 
Athena, who was a dear friend, and it was early on in her career. And when Monty died, she went to the end of the bed and just sort of knelt down and stayed at my feet. It was just a natural thing for her to do. So she kind of stayed at my feet during those three days. She and I shared in the grief of Monty, so we talked a lot. But there was a growing sense of, I can only describe it as like a Vesuvius moment that I had to have at some point with her. And I asked her permission at one point. I said, I need to do it. And she said, go for it. And I did. And I screamed and I yelled at her. How the fuck could you let this happen? How could this have happened? No one ever said this could have happened. This was even possible. I did everything right. I labored well and still this happened. So she was such an extraordinary woman and one of my dearest friends to this day. I'm so grateful to her and I'm so sorry that that had to be such a formative experience for her in her career. You know, there were moments, I suppose, of dipping in and out of my moment with my son, Monty, you know, where I didn't even notice anybody around me, but I'd be, I was there sitting on the couch with him, holding him and looking in his eyes and exploring the detail like mothers do. And the thing that struck me about him was he was perfectly formed. He was just shy of 10 pounds. The blood started to coagulate in his lips, which made them go dark. So within the first few hours, his lips were quite dark and it's like nothing I'd ever seen before. But besides from that and one line on the side of his face where the forceps were pressed in a bit too hard, he was a perfectly formed baby who looked like he was sleeping. And we were given some instructions as we left the hospital to keep his body cold. And the way we were supposed to do that was to have a fan running in a separate room and to put him right in front of that fan every few hours. But there was this one moment where everyone had just left the room and I was there alone with him and I was sorrowful and I was weeping and I was apologizing to him for letting him die. And I wanted him back and I wanted his warmth back because you're not supposed to hold a cold baby. And I had a hot water bottle that was behind my back for the cramps and I took it out and I secretly put it underneath his body. About 10 minutes later, a little bit of blood came out of his nose. I pulled back and I didn't really know what to do and Andy noticed and he came over and he said, sweetheart, I just need to take Monty and I'll be back. And he went and cleaned him up and he put him in front of the fan and cooled him down and I felt like a bit of an idiot. <laughs> no one seemed to mind that I had done that. No one chastised me, no one said a word. And they brought Monty back and I never did that again. After three days of having Monty at home, it came time to say goodbye. The funeral people would be coming to get him and a friend of Jesse's suggested that they rehearse what was going to happen. It allowed Jessie to decide how she wanted things to play out and to prepare herself. So when they arrived, Jessie actively handed Monty over and cut the umbilical cord. The morning of the service, Andy and I were getting ready and his one good white shirt that was appropriate for a funeral was missing a button. So I offered to go and find a needle and thread for him. So I walked into the bathroom and opened the, the mirror and his electric shaver was resting on the top of the cabinet and it fell down and it smacked me in the face, right on the top lip. 
the pain, I remember the pain of it whacking me in the lip, which was comforting for me because I was feeling that morning like God had reached down from the sky and slapped me across the face. One of the people from the funeral home noticed that my lip was swelling up quite remarkably and so she went fishing around for some ice for me. And while she was doing that, I suddenly realised that I hadn't cleaned our shoes and I had this thing in my head, you can't go to a church with scuffed black shoes. So I got Andy's shoes and my shoes and I got out the boot polish and I started to polish them. But the smell of the boot polish smelt like petrol. And I suddenly had this terrible feeling that I'd used a rag soaked in petrol. So I started to think that the shoes now were doused in petrol and we were going to stink out the church with the smell. So I ran the bath and I put the shoes, the leather shoes, into a warm, soapy water bath and scrubbed them, scrubbed them within an inch of their life as my lip was swelling up. And then suddenly the woman came in and said, darling, what are you doing? And I said, I've got the petrol smell on the shoes. I can't get the smell off. And I was in an absolute panic. She knew what was going on. There was no petrol on the shoes. It was the normal smell that my senses were all out of whack. So she drained the bath, we took the shoes out, we dried them as best we could. She couldn't find any ice, so she gave me an icy pole. So I stepped into the earth with an icy pole on my lip, with wet shoes, and we went to the church. And I remember that five minute drive from the apartment to the local church, and I just thought, you know what, this is right, because my son's in the back of this car, and we're about to go and burn him and say goodbye to him and never see him again. I read somewhere that grief is like super strength separation anxiety. We experience it as a byproduct of having relationships, our body sending out alarm signals to rejoin a broken bond. We get stressed trying to reconnect and then stress out more because we know that's never going to happen. For women like Jessie, this connection is literal. Some mothers talk about a sadness after birth, that they miss them being as one with their child. For most, the relationship they have with their newborn baby can ease that loss. But what if your baby dies and all you have is the longing? Jessie told me that she had expected to have this emotional tethering to Monty after he was born. But then all she felt was loss. And I can understand why this would be so isolating for women like Jessie. Because for everyone else, Monty was just an idea. A promise of a future filled with sleepless nights, a distorted image on an ultrasound, or a moving foot beneath the surface of her belly. For Jessie, he was a part of her. So weeks after Monty's death, when everyone had returned to their lives to continue on as normal, Jessie was alone with her grief. She avoided the TV and the inevitable baby commercials it would show. She wondered whether she should do drugs. All of the things she used to enjoy had become pointless and pallid. Grief had coloured her existence, while the world around her continued on in a different palette. You know, I certainly wanted to wear a sign around my neck every time I walked out of the apartment to go to the shops to get the milk, to say, I am a mother without a baby and I'm in pain. That was one of the hardest things I found in that first six months was to be in the world 
and have absolutely no recognition from anyone except the people closest to me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. About what my experience was like in that world. So you stop going out after a while. And then you find ways to be inappropriate and to bring up the dead baby at any opportunity which I started to do. My counsellor said, get a dog. So I did. I got Rosie. And I was in a dog park. And anyway, there was a woman there and I could see she was very pregnant. And then a few weeks pass and there she is again and she has the baby. And she was standing there and she was surrounded by six other women and they were all asking her about the baby and they were looking at the baby. And I found a way just to kind of get myself into that group. And I just started to drop just little hints about parenthood and mothering and babies, just in the general sense, but like just to kind of build a little trail that would eventually lead to somebody saying, oh, so do you have children? And then I got to say what I needed to say, which was, I did have a baby, but my baby died. No one knew what to say after that. And I said a little bit more, oh, but it's okay. We took him home for a few days. They looked quite shocked at this point. And then I had to find some way of ending the conversation and apologizing and walking away. But I honestly can say at the time it was a compulsion. I had to do it. I had to have these women know that it's not like that for everybody. Mm. <laughs> it was not my experience. And, and I loved that she had her baby and I didn't want to take her baby, but I can understand actually why some women steal babies. I really can. I really can. I don't think they're psychos, not all of them. Jessie told me that she met this man once who had lost his daughter at age five. She strangely felt like her grief and sorrow about Monty were insignificant in comparison and how she shouldn't be allowed to feel what she did because there were others who had it worse. But she pushed those thoughts away. For we might argue that losing a child at age five is far more devastating than on the day it's born. But why try to win this argument? What will it prove? There is no grief Olympics, and we certainly don't get any medals for losing more than someone else. So why can't we just feel what we feel without trying to justify it, without trying to make a meaning out of it? As Jesse said to me, it's as simple as saying, my son died and I suffered. You start with the sushi, right? Oh, I must have eaten some sushi. Women aren't allowed to eat sushi. And then you go to the absurd, like, you know, maybe you allowed some thoughts into your mind that weren't healthy. One of the thoughts I remember having after Monty died it was a really big one too, and it stayed with me for a long time, which was he died because we gave him an unusual name. We should have given him a good standard name, a strong name, a historical name or something name. And it's not until it happened to me afterwards that I started to look around and go, actually, babies do actually die sometimes. Children die. Older children die sometimes. Spouses die. It kind of does happen. 
I kind of had this sense for a while that there was an incredible disservice done to me because I just never thought it could happen. I said after Monty died that I was a part of a club that I never wanted to be a member of and I didn't know existed. But there are lots of clubs and it's because being alive means losing, means experiencing loss. That's what it is to be alive. Our shared experience is to love and to lose. So when I realized that, it's like this whole new world opened up to me and I realized I was just a girl with a broken heart. And that's it. There's nothing else than that. And broken hearts take a while to heal. And it, my, my heart did heal. They generally do over time. I remember this moment of driving on a Saturday morning. I was going around the bay and the sun was shining and the sun came through the windscreen and it hit me on the side of my face. And I had this moment of realizing that I was actually alive and life is for the living. And I suddenly realized that, yeah, I think I'm gonna be okay. I think from that moment on, I experienced a sort of re-putting back together. It's a very clunky, clumsy thing. It doesn't happen in an orderly fashion. So there are some moments where you go, oh, I'm happy. And then suddenly go, oh no, I can't. Oh no, no, I'm not happy. My son's dead. So it was like a gear change and clunky and stop, start, stop, start. And feeling relief and then having it swept away in a moment. So there are little cracks and moments of reinvesting in life, normal stuff. But then, whatever it is, the re-putting back together, you're you, but you're you in a new way, right? You can't ever put a person back together and have it be the same. So you have a slightly fresh perspective. You have sadness because you don't enjoy the things that you used to enjoy. So you do lose some things, but you know, certainly get an appreciation for other things. Eventually, Jessie needed to rejoin a world, unmoved by her experience, that had continued on as usual. So, she went back to her old job. I spent a year just trying to function in the way that I used to. I didn't take on anything new. Didn't have any plans or, or ambitions in my work. Um, and, you know, a year passed, another year passed. I started to want to, you know, rethink about my job and perhaps... Um, stretch myself a little bit and I took a massive leap of faith and I became a learning entrepreneur so I worked with social innovation and startups and one day I met a woman called Kerry Noonan and she was a clinical psychologist she's working in palliative care and she was a person who was very ambitious and um, really wanted to change the way we do death and she founded this organization called the Groundswell Project and it was an arts health organization. So it used arts to really sort of provocate the, a different way of understanding death and talking about it and planning for it and responding to it. One night they were coming home in the rain from a gig and chatting in the car. Kerry told Jessie her vision for a society that just knew what to do when someone was grieving a death. Jessie remembered her experience of the three-day vigil where a home was full of people, each with their own self-appointed task. She said, well, that's called a compassionate community. I'm like, well, what's that? A compassionate <laughs> so, community is essentially one where people take responsibility for the care of each other, where everyone plays their part. 
It's not just the job of health professionals or grief counsellors to care for people. It's already happening. People are already wanting to care for each other. They're already caring for each other to die well, to grieve well. And so she told me about this work and I felt very compelled by it because it it just made my experience make so much sense. Um, and I had a natural tr feeling of wanting to pay it forward. I wanted people to know about the story because I wanted to say, you can do it too. It's profound to go and help somebody and to sit with them in their grief. It's the most beautiful thing you can do. Jessie tells me about people who are affectionately known as deathies, people interested in examining and critiquing our responses to death and talking about it. Really, right up until about 70 years ago, what was culturally normal was that we died and we died in our homes and we died in our communities. So as children, we grew up seeing it at least once or twice before we were teenagers. Our grandmother, our grandfather, our uncle, our auntie would die would probably have their body at home for a little while. It would be a normal thing to look at their body, to um, perhaps touch it, to perhaps have a wet cloth and wipe down their hands or their arms or wash their face. And then, you know, we developed hospitals, we developed good health care. We outsourced it to the hospitals, we outsourced it to aged care, we outsourced it to the funeral industry. And so we've had a few generations now where we have not grown up seeing, knowing, sensing death, except through popular culture, TV, news. So it's often a surprise when it happens. And of course, when it happens to you, this was my experience, I had this sense of, well, of course it happens. My God, we're mortal. Of course it happens. At Groundswell, we developed a campaign, National Day of Action, it's called Dying to Know Day. Dying to Know Day brings to life conversations and social actions around death, dying and bereavement. So on the 8th of August, we invite all Australians to just, just take a moment and consider, what are you dying to know? What are you dying to know about the dying experience? So across Australia, we have these things called death cafes. So it's just a casual get together. We talk about death over a piece of cake and a glass of wine. There's no set agenda. It's whatever you want to talk about. We run a workshop called 10 Things to Know Before You Go. And it's an end of life planning workshop. You plan for weeks, months for a birth. Why not for a death? The bookends of life. So we get, you know, people are excited, a little bit nervous when they walk in the room, but we promise them it's going to be lots of fun, lots of laughter. We'll, you know, eat cake. Um, you'll get some good resources and let's just get stuck in. Let's get on with it. Groundswell wants you to be educated about death. It wants you to accept your mortality so the process of dying can be an easier one, filled with love and empowerment. A social event with a medical element, not the other way around. So that when our loved ones inevitably pass away, we don't need to immediately palm them off to the mortuary. We can bring them home if we want. We can sit with them. We can talk to them. We can say goodbye in our own time and in our own way. We hear many stories of great regret from families when they hear of other stories that are being shared of having a home vigil. They wanted that for their mum or their dad or their partner. 
how beautiful. I didn't know I could have that. No one told me. Because no one at the hospital whispered into their ear like they whispered into my ear. You know you can take them home. In the years that followed Monty's death, Jessie gave birth to two girls, Frances and Edie. Jessie says that makes her now a mother of three. When I met four-year-old Edie, she was unfazed by meeting a tall bearded stranger in her home and gave me an exploding fist bump. I didn't get to meet Frances, but I'm told that she is Jessie's shadow. By sheer coincidence, the weekend that Jessie and I recorded her interview was the anniversary of Monty's death. She was kind enough to invite me to go with her to watch the sunrise at the beach, as she does every year on that day. We sat on the rocks, listening to Nick Drake on headphones, while an old guy in speedos swam in the frigid water below. Jessie showed me a scrapbook photo album of condolence cards and pictures taken by her father just after Monty's death. Monty looked like he was peacefully sleeping, and the shots would have passed for regular birth photos were it not for Jessie's distraught, teary face. As the sun rounded the horizon, Jessie had a burst of emotion, weeping almost silently. And then she was done, returning to our conversation and telling me how she never harboured any romantic ideals that Monty somehow lived through her other children. There were very, very few associations with the birth of Frances and the experience of mothering her that I connected with my son, Monty. There were moments during the pregnancy with Francis, yes, where I would say to my friends and family, if this baby dies, just take me out the back and shoot me. Because there's no way, there's no coming back from this again. But of course, when she was born, she was born on my birthday. It was um, this incredible healing of hearts. And my heart was had absolutely broken up until that point. So when he died, he was my flesh. He was my breath. And uh, he was my skin. And then, you know, months and months and months passed and eventually kind of became my blood. And when Francis was born, he was my bones. And he's still my bones now. Nothing changes that. Everlasting thanks to Jessie Williams for her time, patience, support, thoughts, and her story. Thanks also to Derek, Edie, and Francis for their generosity and hospitality. Head to thegroundswellproject.com and dyingtoknowday.org to learn more about Jessie's work. Dying to Know Day will be on August 8th, so check out the website to find an event near you. The Human Ordinary Podcast is produced in Melbourne by me, Sam Lloyd. All original music is by Kent Sutherland. If you dig the podcast, please tell a friend about it so we can find more listeners. And if you've got a spare five minutes, please post a review on iTunes because this really helps the podcast find new listeners. There's also a Facebook page you can like, a website, humanordinary.com, and you can follow me on Twitter, human underscore ordinary one. Anyway, thanks for listening.
This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.